Father, thank you. Your word is so, so rich and you describe yourself to us in many ways. We've been singing some of the things that not only you do, but things that you, you are. They are your nature, your character, your unchanging faithfulness. You make ways in hard, difficult places. You open a path forward where there is none. You are the light of the world, Jesus. You are a miracle worker. You are always working. And we get to join you in your work. We get to have your life and join you in the work of your kingdom that is already breaking into the kingdoms of this earth. And God, this is a, this is a heavy psalm. It's a big confession. Asaph speaks for many of us. So I pray that there would be openness and humility and that we would all, beginning with me, Lord, be honest with you as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you open your Bibles in Psalm 73, I'd like you to open it there. Psalm 73, this is going to be a confession. Not from me, but from Asaph, a psalmist. A man who evidently you're going to read from what he learned about God had a rich life with God, but also a difficult life. He has a great deal to teach us. If you'll subscribe to my email, one of the things I'd like to do more for myself this year and invite you on the journey, I'd like to read more, and I'd like to read on paper more. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired of screens. Um, A university, (laughs) they might not have caught the irony, invited their faculty a few months ago to a meeting on Zoom regarding Zoom fatigue. Okay, so they're going to give them tips on how to deal with the fatigue on the screen by inviting them to another screen. We're all like that. This year, I want to read more, and I want to read more books on paper, and I won't bury you with my reading list, but I would like to invite you periodically as I find something especially good, as I did at the end of last year, I'd like to invite you to read along with me. If you're not much of a reader, and many people aren't because the screens have stolen our attention span, Let me remind you that there is this service called Audible, where you can listen to the book. If reading is difficult for you, if you simply don't have the time to sit down and read, but you sit down and drive, you can profit from listening to the book and listening to the Bible. All of this is going to be in the email today. One of the most interesting books I read in 2020 helped me understand something from several years ago, an experience I had at a local Christian university. I was invited there to give just one quick little talk to a bunch of undergraduates, and I'm in the season of life where I forget how old I am. I walked into the classroom feeling like an older brother, certainly a few years ahead of these students, but not that much older than them. And then it dawned on me, they are the exact age of my older son. They're not looking at me as a slightly older peer. They're looking at me as their dad, who might, for all they know, drop dead at any moment. Um, That's the way it goes with youth. But before I, I went into the talk, the professor told me, I just want you to know at any point during your talk, which was a very positive, upbeat, friendly, kind of fatherly chat, said at any point someone might leave the room, someone might burst into tears. She said, I figure about a third of this classroom is really on edge. And I asked, well, 
something happened? Was there some disaster on campus? No, they were just upset about the news, things that were happening in the country. And that really struck me, that so many people at a privileged university, at a pretty good, by all appearances, having a pretty good-looking life, would be so on the edge that they might burst into tears. That led me eventually to one of the best things I read in 2020. Two secular researchers with no reference to God that I could find, I believe one of them is actually an atheist, but two scholars who work in universities noticed all at the same time that anxiety among college students, depression, self-harm, attempts at suicide, all of the bad things that could happen to a person, they all skyrocketed at a specific point in time several years ago. Through their professional acquaintance, they set out to answer the question, why are these students so fragile? Why are they so close to the edge? What happened to make a season of life that is hard for everyone? Why does it seem to be so much harder for them than it was even two or three years ago? The answer to their question was a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. I'm not here to tell you their book. I am here to tell you one of their interesting findings. They said, if a young girl in particular, boys and girls, true for both, but especially if a young girl has a smartphone, all the bad things increase dramatically. Now, why is that? That is because of something you may have experienced and experienced more of during the pandemic called social media. You see, one of the myths about people is that men are violent and women are not. Men and women are violent in different ways, these researchers say. Men are more prone to physical violence. A boy is more likely to punch his classmate in the nose. Girls are not nearly as prone to be physically violent. They say they're relationally violent. What does that look like? Well, that looks like we're going to live our good life. We're going to have the best life we can. We're going to put it on Instagram, and we're not going to invite you we're going to show you every day, minute by minute, if you choose to follow us on Instagram, we're going to show you, Susie, all the good times we're having to which you specifically were not invited. These researchers say that much of what has happened in the youngest generation in America, their anxiety, of course, it's not the entire answer. But one of it is, there, we have created unwittingly, through smartphones and through social media, a comparison machine that never stops. Because very few people are putting their worst moments on social media. What people are generally doing are very carefully curating their lives, sometimes with better lighting. I don't know if you've seen this, I've actually been in a restaurant where someone was photographing their food with the help of a friend who brought a light kit. Okay? And they set it up by the table, and it was a whole scene. And they weren't professionals. They were just kids. I thought, wow, the effort to bring a crew with you to lunch, to portray the goodness of your life, this is unique. We've never had anything like it. And the trouble with that is that comparison kills contentment. Last week, this week, and next, we're going to be talking about contentment. 
We're going to be talking particularly today about how contentment is fought by and if we're not careful is destroyed by injustice because comparison always kills contentment. If you are continually comparing your life with someone else's, it's going to do spiritual harm every time. If the comparison favors you, it's going to make you proud. And I don't know if you have this little brokenness in you. I have it in me. Sometimes when I feel that my life isn't very good, I'll find someone who's really having a hard time to compare my life to theirs and make myself feel better. Um, in other words, I'm not that great, but compared to that guy, I'm doing pretty well. That's pride. If the comparison does not favor you, that leads you into bitterness. Bitterness is today's topic. Psalm 73 is one of the most well-loved psalms in my life. It's something I've read and studied and taught for years. Some of you will remember, if you've been here as long as I have or longer than I have, you may remember that Psalm 73 is something I taught early and often. Without apology, for about four consecutive years, once a year, I walked through this psalm with you because I'm convinced as a third-generation Christian and a third-generation minister, I'm convinced that the single greatest killer of Christian contentment, the greatest spiritual enemy for everyday Christians is their comparison with other people resulting in bitterness. Bitterness is important. Bitterness is the bondage that you suffer when you don't trust God to do what is right. For every Christian, for every pastor especially, for every well-known prominent leader, and there have been many of those in the news who have blown their lives up, brought shame to themselves, brought shame to Jesus, disappointed their congregations. For every scandalous person that makes headlines like that, there are hundreds and thousands upon thousands of Christians who are quietly bitter who started following God and believed something that may not always be true here on earth, that if only they serve God faithfully, they would have an amazing life. They would have a life that is worthy of Instagram. And they could photograph their life and put their life on Facebook and give updates on their family and their marriage and their kids and their job and their promotions and their vacations and their dinners, and life would be not only good, life would be enviable to other people. Asaph, a psalmist of Israel, a man who has a deep life with God, knew better and gave us his confession. He gave us his confession, confessed his bitterness. Asaph is going to tell you in Psalm 73 what kind of bondage he was in, how much he suffered because through what he went through, he lost sight of God and stopped trusting that God would do right. Read his confession with me, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I want you to see what Asaph is doing here. In verse 1, he wants to reassure the reader of what he eventually learned. That God actually is good. 
that God actually can be trusted. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, I was almost lost. I lost sight of the fact that God is good. What happened, Asaph? Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy, comparison, bitterness, those are hard things. Those are enslaving things. And Asaph is telling you that's where he was. Listen to the next few verses. This is going to be long and poetic. But he's going to tell you on the other side of it, having survived it, what he thought of his life compared to the life of others. There was no Instagram a thousand years before Jesus was born when Asaph was writing the Psalms. But he is going to tell you, I was making comparisons between my life, which I had dedicated to God, and the life of people who had no use for him, and I was envious, and it made me bitter. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. In other words, they insult God. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. I want you to walk through these images with me. Asaph is saying, God, these wicked people, they don't have trouble like normal people do. They actually adorn themselves. They use pride as if it were jewelry. They cover themselves with violence. In other words, these are the kind of people who are willing to do whatever it takes to have their way. And they're proud of it. And they get away with it. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. When God is mentioned, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. These are proud, wicked people who do not believe in God, do not trust God, have no use for Him, deny His very existence. And Asaph says, compared to my life, they're doing great. Everything they want, they have. They're so fat. They're so well-fed because in the ancient world, being well-fed was not a guarantee. They are so well-fed. Their lifestyles are so extravagant that they're fat. Their eyes are popping out of their heads, he says, because they have so much. And in verse 11, he compl- in verse 10, he complains that people are watching this. Therefore, his people turn back to them. In other words, the people are watching this wicked people and find no fault in them. And they say, here's their attitude toward God, watch this. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, we do what we want. What God? What justice? If this God, Asaph, that you believe exists and that you tell us is going to do right, Why is my life so good when your life is so miserable? His summary is in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
The hardest thing in this sermon is for you to be honest with yourself and about your real thoughts. Have you ever felt this way as a Christian? That you have served, you have loved, you have given, you have denied yourself things for the sake of Jesus. You've given away money that you had earned for the cause of Christ. You had raised your kids, you had pursued your marriage, you had pursued the idea of being married. You had tried to order your friendships and your education and your career. You had tried to live for God and it doesn't appear that anything good is coming out of it. Because the people who are making no effort at all, the people who don't go to church, the people who sleep in on Sunday, the people who are telling you you're a fool for not doing it yourself, their lives are amazing. You can peek over their shoulder, you can overhear their conversations, you can look if you want at their social media and their life is sleek, it is beautiful. They do what they want, they do it when they want and they get away with anything they please. That is how Asaph feels. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked always at ease, they increase in riches. That is a confession of bitterness. That is a man, and I'm going to show you further along just how bitter he became. That is a man who is bitter, and that is a man who, because of his bitterness, is in bondage. Because bitterness is the bondage you suffer when you don't trust God to do what is right. There's a false teaching that permeates the world called the prosperity gospel that tells you if you trust God and do what God says, your life is going to be amazing. It depends on the greed of two people. It depends on the greed of the preacher and the people who listen to him. The preacher promises like th things like that to people with the, without the authority and without the truthfulness of Scripture because he wants a lifestyle. And people listen to that teaching because they want it to be true. They listen to his misteaching of Scripture, his twisting of Scripture, because they want the lifestyle that he promises is just within their grasp. But then as you go out into real life and you're continually disappointed and you're betrayed by other people and because of the wickedness of other people, marriages and relationships and work doesn't work out. And you see that people that don't know the truth of Scripture, don't make any effort to honor God, are doing in your sight so much better than you seem to be. If you can't reconcile that, if you can't learn to fight injustice, if you can't learn to deal with what Asaph saw, you will never be content. Instead, you'll be embittered. And it will enslave you. It will put its shackles on you because bitterness comes when you, through hard experiences, through tears and disappointment and the wickedness of others, you stop trusting that God will do what is right. How does bitterness hurt us? Let me show you. First of all, bitterness gradually controls us. Bitterness allowed in your life will eventually take over your entire life. Listen to how bitter Asaph was, verse 13 and 14. He's speaking to God now. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
want you to understand what God is saying, what, what Asaph is saying to God and to Israel through the poetic language. He is saying, God, I served you. I kept my heart clean for you, and it did me no good. Serving you has been pointless. Serving you did not work out. Psalm 73 is one of the high points in Scripture of dealing with comparison, in dealing with the wickedness that others do against us, but this theme runs right through the Bible. In fact, this theme is the question of the book of Job. The book of Job is often mischaracterized as God's answer to why do bad things happen to good people. That's not the point of the book of Job. The point of the book of Job is to ask this probing question of the reader, will you continue to trust and serve God if there's nothing in it for you? If God takes every earthly comfort from you, will you trust Him to continue to serve Him for the sake of God Himself, for the sake of God alone? He will likely give you much more than Himself. He's that good and that generous. He will likely give you many earthly blessings, but if He doesn't, if the earthly blessings are withheld, if the earthly blessings are pulled back as they were in the life of Job, will you trust him then? That's the question. Because if you've read the book, we're giving the backstage view. Job never, ever is told why such suffering befell him. This is what Asaph is dealing with, and it has taken over his whole life. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've tried to live a clean life and it's done me no good. That is bitterness and it will eventually control you. If you don't root it out, because the book of Hebrews describes bitterness as a root, if you don't root it out of your life, it will eventually destroy everything, including your enjoyment of current things. I told you this story many years ago. Those of you with amazing memories may remember, but I had a very casual, light-hearted brush with bitterness when I was in Bible college because a Bible college student stole from me. The last place you would expect all your money to be stolen out of your wallet is Bible college, but that's what happened. I nearly said his name. Maybe I'm still bitter about it. But we'll call him, we'll call him Mike, his name... His name is unimportant, but we'll call him Mike. I was making minimum wage, running a cash register at Lamps Plus. Remember Lamps Plus? I was the poor schlub behind the cash register. And he took, in one bold move, he took about a paycheck away from me. And like an idiot, I was walking around with a paycheck's worth of cash in my wallet. He snuck into my room, took it, left, left me flat broke with my parents out of the country. He eventually got caught and expelled. you think that would be good enough for me, but no. Every time I opened my wallet after that, I thought about how much money he'd stolen from me, and I looked at my wallet and said, if it wasn't for him, there'd be more in here. And that was nonsense. I would have already spent it, of course. But that's how bitterness works. That's a trivial thing. It's hardly worth mentioning. Between services, a woman in our church, a godly woman in our church, texted me and said, that's exactly, bitterness taking over life is exactly what happened to my husband. It happens. 
If you allow bitterness, even over small things, to remain in there, it will eventually take over your life. Listen, it's a root. We had an old tree. We live in an old house, and we had a tree that was planted decades ago in front of our house. I didn't want to do it, but I eventually had to pay to have it removed because its roots had grown so extensive that they were destroying all the concrete in front of our house and starting to threaten the house itself. It took professionals with all the equipment and a stump grinder three tries to get rid of that thing. The damage continued even though the tree wasn't there. Why? Because for months, in spite of their efforts the first two times, the roots remained so it is with bitterness. If you are continually haunted, if you return in anger and sorrow and a sense of loss to things that were done to you in the past, things that you were denied, injustices that you suffered, you will continue to suffer that bondage to that evil and to that person until you release it. A second harm that bitterness does to us is it ruins the people around us. I was so moved to get that text message because the woman who texted me in spite of the bitterness of her husband, her ex-husband, is one of the sweetest women I've ever met. God spared her the bitterness of his life. Look in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, Asaph is confessing his sin to Israel in a song. He's telling them in the first 14 verses just how bitter he was. But he says to God, if I had told people this, I would have ruined everybody who's looking at me. So it is with you, especially if you have a position of influence. If you're a father, if you're a mother, if you have younger people and children looking to you for an example, the bitterness you conquer in your own life won't matter to you alone. It will save them. If you share your bitterness with them, it will ruin the people around you. And eventually, and this is the worst part of bitterness, it moves from people to God. Our bitterness begins with the disappointment of the betrayal of others, but if we don't deal with it, if we are embittered with people long enough, we will eventually be embittered with God himself. Asaph tells us that in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. This is poetry, but this is as strong as it gets. He's painting with dark colors. Asaph says, God, while I lamented my lot, while I compared my life with the wicked, when I found that their life was so much better than my own, when I was embittered in my heart, when my heart was in pain every single day because of the comparisons I was making, he says in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, God, I didn't have any more sense than an animal does. That's what bitterness does. It robs you of your actual humanity. It kills your spiritual sensitivity. It makes you as spiritually sensible as a mule. That is Asaph's experience. That is Asaph's confession. If you don't deal with the bitterness that you have toward other people, it will eventually soil and stain your relationship with God. So how did Asaph turn the corner? Let me show you verse 16. 
When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That's the truth. Asaph says, God, when I considered the plight of the suffering of godly people compared with the prosperity of bad people, it wore me out. That's why social media is so pernicious. That's why it's so dangerous. I don't want to harp on social media. I use it. I just want you to use it wisely. I want it, I want it to do you spiritual good rather than spiritual harm because in social media in particular, there's a new kind of creation called an Instagram influencer. Are you familiar with this? Whatever the niche of life that a person has chosen, they portray a life that is, belongs and looks like the life of a superhero. These are people who are famous for being famous, who are paid for being good-looking, who are paid for being able to portray a life, and the whole thing is based on comparison and by creating discontent in your heart to make you envious of them and make you want to be more like them. If you don't break that comparison machine, if you don't free yourself of that constant comparison, you're going to be ruined. If you're continually comparing the reality of your life, hard, difficult, empty of peace as it sometimes can be, and you compare it with people who Asaph says have no trouble at all, when you try to reconcile that, you're going to agree with Asaph. This is a wearisome task. You're not going to be able to come up with answers until you do what he did. Verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Contentment only comes from having the long view. If you base your life on moment-by-moment living and make your happiness and peace depend on your present circumstances, you will never, ever be content. Contentment is something that comes when you rest in the fact that God is good and that God will bring justice. That is what Asaph eventually remembered. That is eventually what he's going to teach us. He is going to teach us that in spite of what he thought, in spite of how his heart was embittered, God actually is good and God actually can be trusted. Let me show you how Asaph tells us that God is good And God is good to us, specifically how God is good to you. Number one, God is faithful to you when you act like you don't know Him. That's verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Those three verses hang together. Asaph says, God, I was daily comparing my life with the life of people who ignore you. And they were always winning. I was always losing that comparison. Their life in comparison to mine continually looked amazing. And it got into my heart and it imprisoned me. It made me bitter. It robbed me of my spiritual sensitivity. I may as well have been an animal in your presence. That's how much I knew you. That's how much I cared about you. I had no spiritual sensitivity left. But then, 
I looked at their end. I looked at the long game. I looked at how things were going to run out. And then I found relief. And even when I acted like I didn't know you, even when I was thinking of telling people that it's all a sham, that you can't be trusted, that it does no good to serve you, even in those times I was with you, verse 23, because you hold my right hand. That is the goodness of God. When you act like you don't know God, God continues to act like He knows you because He does and He loves you. And when you step away from Him, when you are unfaithful to Him, He remains faithful to you. He holds you by His strong right hand. The reason you have a grip on God is because God first took hold of you. Yes, you obey Him. Yes, you love Him. Yes, you're coming back to Him. But the only reason that is so is because God faithfully holds on to you. And verse 24 says that God will eventually bring you safely home to Him. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. There's the whole Christian life in one verse. God, what you can give me in this present suffering is counsel. You can give me perspective. You can show me the end of the wicked, which we're going to come to. You're going to show me how it's all going to play out. You're going to show me that their happiness is only momentary, but mine will be eternal. You will give me counsel here on earth, but verse 24, afterward you will receive me to glory. This is the beauty of contentment. Contentment comes from Christ, not from circumstances. That's probably the single idea that ties this whole series together. If you have Christ, the things that you don't have don't matter nearly as much because, number three, God promises that He's going to be your strength and your supply. That when you are weak, God will be strong for you. When you lack, He will provide for you. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want you to understand something really important. That last line, God is my portion forever, that is the language of wealth. That is the language of inheritance. That is the language of possession in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, if you didn't have a portion if you had not been left land, if you had not been left a place by your family, if you did not have an ancestral home, a place where you belonged, you were in the worst kind of shape. You were in social disgrace and probably going to die of something like starvation as an outcast. What Asaph is saying is, God, as I continually try to keep my heart and my hands pure and live for you, I see that people all around me who don't even trust you, don't even believe in you, they have so much more than I do. What I've discovered through this experience is, you're my strength and you're my portion. You are the wealth. You are my possession. You are the one who is going to strengthen me. You are the one who is going to provide for me. Again, if you have Christ, whatever you lack on this earth doesn't matter nearly as much. And Asaph's final discovery, number four, is the goodness of God is this. He is going to shelter you from judgment so that you can share how good he is with others. Verse 27, 
Behold, those who were far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. If I've lost you, please listen to this and I'll be done. The hardest thing to deal with in life is evil at the hands of other people who seem to be getting away with it. That's why it wrecks so many Christians. Because Christians expect that in their churches, in their families, especially from those who profess Christ, they should be safe, they should be blessed, they should be provided for. And that's not always the way it works. This week, to prepare myself for this, I immersed myself through a podcast in the testimony of Christians who suffered greatly at the hands of other Christians. In the case of one woman, she suffered greatly at the hands of her father, who presented himself as not only a Christian, but a Christian leader. The thing that gives her comfort, she said on the other side of it, is in realizing how evil her earthly father was, she has more clearly seen the goodness of her heavenly father. She broke through to a great discovery that no one gets away with anything. I want you to especially listen to me if you've suffered abuse at the hands of others, especially people you thought and you should have been able to depend upon for safety, for protection, for love, for blessing whether that was abuse within your family or abuse, God forbid, within a church, and it happens, you need to remember that nobody gets away with anything because God is the righteous judge who knows the end of the wicked. Asaph said, this wore me out, this embittered my heart, this reduced me to an animal-like condition until I met with you again in the sanctuary and then I got my eyes out of this present pain and suffering and lack and I looked up higher and I saw the end. I saw how it's going to work out. For the last few years, I've had the privilege of being a little bit, just dipping my toe in the world of law enforcement and the administration of justice. In dealing with the police, especially those who investigate serious crimes, one of the most frustrating things that they have to deal with is they see wickedness and evil on a daily basis, and in spite of their best efforts, they often see people get away with it. They don't know who committed those crimes or because of the protections of the legal system itself. They and the perpetrator both know who did it and what they did, but they can't prove it. And it's going to go unpunished, at least for now. God is the righteous judge and no one gets away with anything. He's never out of resources. He always knows the facts. He always knows the truth. Here's the truth of the gospel. Those who harmed you, those who hurt you will either receive the justice they richly deserve or they will find in Christ the same mercy that Jesus died to give you. No sin, no crime, no harm, no evil will go unpunished. It will either be punished in the person of Christ at the cross, dying for sinners, saving those who trust him, 
Those sins will either be satisfied in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, or they will remain on the life of the guilty who will not turn to Christ, and he will receive from God justice. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. It took Asaph time. It was a journey for him, but that's what he learned, that God can be trusted to do what is right. So if this comparison cycle has become an embittering trap for you, let me advise you and plead with you in the name of God and on the truth of his word to climb up a little higher. To see how foolish and fallacious those comparisons are and turn yourself and your circumstances over to God. To release people from the wickedness that they have done to you, to place them in God's hands so that he will give them either the mercy that Jesus died to give you or the justice that they have deserved. Either way, it's out of your hands. Either way, they are in the care and under the eye of God. Either way, you can rest and you can trust that God is good and God will do what is right. Let's pray together. Let me speak to you really personally and directly because I know for some of you, this has brought up memories. And I don't willingly reopen wounds. But if you felt pain, if you felt anger, if you felt despair as you've heard Asaph's confession, if you've identified with it, let me invite you right now to turn to your Father and release those circumstances and release those people to Him. Ask your Father to give you the contentedness of not making comparisons between your life and the life of unjust people. Christian, if you have Christ, it will all be well in the end. If it's not well now, that's just a reminder this isn't the end. And if you don't have Christ, whether you're the victim or the perpetrator. Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus died to comfort the suffering. He has comfort and peace for the humbled victim. He has abundant mercy for the guilty. My invitation to you would be to turn to him, to turn yourself over fully to God confess your comparisons, confess your bitterness to him, and entrust yourself to Jesus who died for you. If you make that decision, send us a text. If you're here in the, in the tent, if you need counsel, we have biblical counselors, we have people who listen wonderfully, who know how to help and come alongside the hurting. They've hurt themselves. They've been in pain themselves. That's why they're good, merciful listeners and counselors to people who are suffering. Father, teach us to be content in you. We will strive in vain on this earth trying to fashion life just as we need it to be to be satisfied. Teach us instead to be contented with you and to turn wickedness and evil over to you. 
to trust you, the judge of all the earth, to always do what is right. I pray for those who are hurting. I pray for those, Lord, who have suffered abuse and betrayal. I pray, Lord, for the sheep that have been hurt by the wolves. Jesus, you're the good shepherd. You can bind up every wound. You can heal them of everything. May they find your goodness in the face and in spite of all the evil people have cost them. In Jesus' name, amen. A final word for you. My single greatest fear of this series is that you'll have a simple misunderstanding. I can't stress this enough. What I just shared with you is the truth. That's why it's in Scripture. It is God's actual truth. But knowing the truth alone won't set you free in your day-to-day experience. You have to know it, and you have to practice it. It has to be habitual. Because there will always be a battle between truth and lies. If you think that having spiritual insight in a moment, you read a psalm, God speaks to you in his word, you see the light of the truth, you see things in a new reality, you think, that's it, I'm free. No, you've been shown the way to freedom, but the way to walk in freedom is to walk in the truth. To habitually, when the accusations, when the comparisons, when the discontentedness, when the anxiety, when the feelings of anger and injustice come flooding back, to continually turn again to your Father. Remember the truth He showed you. Because what He showed you in the light is just as true in the darkness. So don't be discouraged if this morning you feel like, okay, that helped. I got it. I'm going to remember that. Within five hours, you may feel like you've forgotten it. It's still true. Just return to your Father. Remind yourself. Preach to yourself again the goodness and the gospel of His Word to you and walk in the truth. It takes practice. It takes establishing a new habit of new life, a new way of living and thinking and choosing and feeling where sin had left a groove, where sin had left a mark. But Jesus can do it all. He can give you peace and He can give you contentment. Just remember... It's a journey. It's a long race. It must be run with patience. But you will be free and you can be contented in Christ. Father, may it be so. Bless my brothers and sisters. Fill them with your peace. And when comparison, when bitterness, when anxiety, when fear come knocking again, help us remember the truth that you've shown us and show us your goodness again that we may quickly return to the comfort of your presence. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you folks. Love you. Bye-bye.